Thank you, Todd. And as I'm sure all of you know, we have a fun text this morning. Very hotly debated topic of state and church seems to be the focus. How do the two relate? How do we as Christians stand in a world ruled by presidents and prime ministers while having a king in heaven? And what do taxes have to do with all of that? Well, let's hope we can come to some satisfying conclusions this morning. I'm going to pray for the Lord to help us, and then we're going to move forward. Let's pray. Lord, as we step into your word, help us to understand what you wish to teach us. Use me, diminish my voice, and bring your voice forward. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. There are times when I write a sermon where uh, it just flows. Everything aligns really well. I find myself really enjoying the process and uh, the week is a very enjoyable time. Uh, then there are times when I feel like I'm pulling teeth with each point. Uh, I can't organize my thoughts and let's be fair, even when I write out my sermons, my points are not often organized. And in those times, it feels like I'm relearning how to write a sermon. Uh, and as though I'm trying to discover fire all over again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then there are weeks when I write an opening, like you just heard. I put prayer of illumination down in bold so I know to pray. And then I just want to stop. And I look at all of you and I'll say, The Lord is good and greatly to be praised. And he has saved you from all your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Go in peace. So depending on how the sermon comes out, I'll let you know which one of the weeks this was. Because this text is hard. It's not terribly hard to interpret, I would say. I think there is a clear understanding being placed before us. I think that there are some interesting details that will point us towards a great truth. And I think the gospel is clear in the teaching but the text is hard because of all the baggage that comes with it. The discussion about the church and state is a deep ocean, and it's been argued over from the very beginning of Christianity. Peter and Paul in their epistles deal with how Christians can relate to the governing authorities over them. Peter spends most of his first epistle telling us how we are to pray for the rulers placed over us by God. Though they may abuse us and destroy us individually, in the second epistle, he speaks out harshly against the false prophets and mentions the coming of the Lord, saying these are signs of the end of the age because of all these terrible things going on. And including in those terrible things is a terrible governing authority. Paul, on the other hand, speaks of God's control over governing authorities. While at the same time, he is placed under house arrest and is believed put to death by those same governing authorities he says respect, just as Peter was. Beyond all that, when we get into church history, there's a whole sect within Protestantism that says the church fell away from the gospel in 315 AD when Constantine legalized Christianity. One of the most famous works in all of Christianity, The City of God by Augustine, discusses the relationship of man to the world around him, using a city as a metaphor. He speaks of us standing in two cities, the city built by man and the city built by God, one that will fall away and one that will stand forever. 
At the height of Christendom, we saw the Pope place a crown on the head of Charlemagne as the king of the Holy Roman Empire. And now, well, now we live in a country where one of its key tenets is the separation of church and state. It's gradually becoming such a major point of contention that churches and pastors are being reported to the IRS to lose their tax-exempt status because they speak about political candidates and political ideals from the pulpit. All that said, I ask all of you, please, please pray for me as we walk through this text. We're swimming in deep waters. We'll not be able to address all the issues with God and government. I don't think it's a healthy idea to use one text to define the entirety of our theology of God and government. So when we look at our text, we can say, this is a continuation of what has been going on over the last chapter. The Sanhedrin has confronted Jesus. They are testing him, argument, having an argument with him. And though the religious leaders have found themselves stumped on each front, they seem to keep coming forward, keep banging their head against the mountain that is Jesus Christ. We'll find it even in next week and the week after. But this week, we have an unlikely pair trying to do something underhanded. A clever trap is set by the Herodians and the Pharisees. This is of particular interest because the Herodians and the Pharisees don't like each other. The Herodians rallied behind the puppet king Herod, established by the Roman rule. They believed Israel as a nation could not only survive but flourish while under the rule of Rome. And thought Herod would be able to help them with that. Whereas the Pharisees, well they were no fans of Herod. They would rather be free from the rule of Rome. They think we should govern ourselves alone and that they should be helping with the religious rule. So what we have is a bunch of religious outsiders and political insiders joining together to take on Jesus Christ. They begin by trying to butter him up. You can see verse 14. Right? It says there, And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Really laying it on thick. Groundwork of flattery to try and undermine or knock Jesus off his defenses. And then they ask him the question, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question in itself is very difficult with multiple responses. You may not think it's that difficult because Christ gives a very quick and succinct answer and they are marveled by it, but it's difficult because if Christ were to say, well, of course you should pay your taxes, why wouldn't you? The crowd and the Pharisees would rise up against him and accuse him of undermining Israel. Because many of them with the Pharisees don't enjoy the rule of Rome. They think, no, 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 we should not. This is a way to silently avoid Rome. Don't pay your taxes. But if he were to say, we should not pay our taxes, he would be charged with insurrection, trying to undermine the entire state and arrested right there on the spot. So Christ has a conundrum. How does he walk this line? Well, first, first he asked for a denarius. One day's wage in the first century. And you can make notes, Jesus does not have a denarius in his pocket. He's not carrying around the money of Caesar, but the men who wish to trap him do. 
They do, and they're willing to hand it over readily in their pocket. And they present him the coin, and he asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they respond, Caesar. And we come to the teaching, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. This is a deep truth. Whosever image we bear, we should give back to them what we benefit from them. His whole argument about approaching government and God is based upon image-bearing. What benefits do we receive as image-bearers? What does it cost us to be an image-bearer? Not just that coin in your pocket or that dollar bill, but you yourself. That's where we will spend the rest of our time this morning. And we'll separate it simply, make it helpful for us. The likeness of Caesar and the likeness of God will be driving our two points. I pray at the end of our time we will find ourselves comfortable bearing the image of Caesar in our pockets, while at the same time recognizing the image of God imprinted on our hearts. So let's begin with the, Im the image and likeness of Caesar. So the denarius, as I said, was a one day's wage, but it was also ubiquitous throughout all of Israel. The nation was under Roman rule, so it made sense. It was the standard silver coin used throughout the entire Roman Empire. And much like the Greek language, it pervaded all of the Roman Empire. The coin was equally powerful as the language. On the coin was stamped the face of the emperor at the time, Tiberius Caesar. He was the ruler, during the pow ruler in power during Christ. The image would have been problematic for the Israelites. Maybe not so problematic that they hated it, but it was problematic to have an image. It's too closely associated with false idols. To carry an image of the Caesar around in your pocket, to put the image of Caesar around in the corner of your house, to hide it so that no one would steal it, to constantly be reminded of what the Caesar looked like, and that his face imbued a sense of power in culture. Needless to say, the coin would easily be a reminder of worshipping a man and an image, and yet they used it. Probably seemed impossible to avoid. As I said, the coin was on the same level as the language. You needed it. It was a necessary thing for living and working in the first century in the Roman Empire. But the inscription on the coin is far more interesting and far more of a problem. Written on one side of the coin was this phrase, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And then on the other side was Pontifex Maximus. You may hear that even today in the Roman Catholic Church. It's titled High Priest. See, Caesar was not just an emperor or a ruler in a political world. He was also the high priest and deity to be worshipped. We see it more clearly in later centuries throughout Christianity. The Roman Empire bringing their foot down on Christians and onto the church. Those who were arrested for worshipping a false god, namely Jesus Christ, were told come out and pour a drink offering to Caesar as a form of worship, and you will be let go. Many Christians died because they would not worship the false god, Caesar. There was even a whole argument in the early church, first two, three centuries, that asked the question, what should we do with people who were arrested and then offered a drink offering to save their lives and then wanted to come back to church? Should these people be welcomed back? I don't know. 
The answer wasn't actually given. They just argued it and it eventually became legalized and they never had to deal with it. So what do we do with this imprinted image of a deity claiming idol-worshipping coin in the pockets of the Israelites? The way I've been portraying it seems like we should throw it out. Rebel against the powers over us. Why would we want to worship this false god? We need to create something new, something more God-honoring. You would think that would be the answer. All that I just said seems to push that direction, but Christ doesn't tell them that, does he? He doesn't say, throw away that false idol, that one who claims to be a high priest and a divine ruler. No, he looks at the money, he sees the inscription on the image, and he tells them to give the image back to the one who bears that image. Why? Because, because image-bearing has costs and benefits. Image-bearing has costs and benefits. So what are the costs and benefits of image-bearing to Caesar? They're roughly the same costs and benefits that come to carrying a picture of George Washington around in your pocket. It's an obvious connection between the Roman Empire and the first few centuries in America today. I'm not one to just merely talk about the downfall of Roman Empire and the downfall of America. I'm not talking about that. I mean the influence and power that comes with the Roman Empire is similar to the influence and power that comes with America today. If you're an American citizen, you can walk around this world with the power of America behind you. You may mean, that may mean danger in certain areas of the world, but overall, most areas, it means great strength. When an American citizen is killed in a foreign nation, it makes headlines across the entire world. If you remember, just last year, missionaries in Haiti, they were taken captive by gangs. What happened? It was international news for weeks. There was a countdown for how long they were captured and how many had been released. There's great benefits to being attached to this country. We also carry with us a great deal of power from our culture and our economy. We are considered the most powerful and wealthy country in the world. People from around the world come to America to study at its universities. They experience its culture. They get specialized health care. And even beyond our borders, the most used money in the world, the most stable money in the world, is the American dollar. It carries more weight than any other financial piece of paper. And there are enormous benefits for being an American citizen. Israel had similar, though slightly lesser, benefits. They did not have citizen status, but they did have the benefit of being under the care of Rome. They often saw themselves as being occupied by a foreign force, but if Israel was ever attacked by a foreign nation, they were just a vassal. They were under the care of Rome. They would have benefited greatly from the Roman forces who were protecting them if some foreign nation rose up against them. The roads, the roads of Rome were enormously helpful. Some of the most impressive pieces of architecture in the ancient world. Historians say Rome held on to its power for so long because of its roads. They could transport military strength quickly and efficiently thousands of miles. You can still even see them today. That's how well they were made. And Israel had that benefit. The road built to Israel connected to Rome. There's a famous saying in the Lord of the Rings that Bilbo says, 
you got to be careful when you step outside your front door because the road to your front door connects like a river to all the other roads and before long your feet will take you far, far away, away. And I believe it was studied recently that you could walk from the southern tip of Israel on a Roman road all the way up to the shores of modern-day France overlooking Dover. All on Roman roads. That's an enormous benefit for travel and for safety. The movement of goods and services were extensive in those days. Now financially, I've already mentioned how the denarius was used not only in Israel, but throughout all the Roman Empire, much like the American dollar. The denarius had tremendous spending power wherever you may travel. Those are just some of the benefits. What are the costs? I'm sure we could all list some of the costs of being an American citizen. Things that are not all rainbows and butterflies to be an American. And things were all not all dates and leavened bread in Israel or whatever the direct relationship that is there. There were costs to having a foreign army and government placed over you in Israel. We see the outworking of that when Christ is arrested in just a few chapters. The Sanhedrin must get approval from Pilate before they wish to do anything. Even Herod is not able to make unilateral decisions. He must appeal to the Roman side. But the most relevant issue for our text, for our text is taxes. Taxes. They don't want to pay money to a foreign oppressor. They don't want to be beholden to Caesar and carry his face around in their pocket. But Christ recognizes their hypocrisy. That's what it says recognizes that they are hypocritical. He knows they still benefit from it. They want all the goods with none of the costs. They want to hold on to that money in their pocket. They want to be able to use it and spend it and travel and be able to, to feel as though this is okay. And he also knows if they fail to pay the cost, they lose the benefit. If they stop paying their taxes, they will feel the wrath of the Roman Empire on it. It will be as though they were having an uprising beginning in Israel. And the wrath of the Roman Empire will come down upon them. So Christ says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Because all that you benefit from him is worth it. You have the coin in your pocket, you have the dollar bill in your wallet, you benefit from the goodness of this country as its citizens... You should pay for those benefits. You should understand the costs and pay a small price for those benefits. So all of us, we should pay our taxes. I understand we may not like how our money is being used. I understand that as Israelites, they did not like how their money was being used to pay for the salaries of centurions patrolling their city. And yet Christ tells them to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Because we have been placed in this world under the rule of God, but also under the rule of a lesser authority that God has established. And if we fail to pay our taxes, first and foremost, we disobey a teaching of Christ. And secondly, we will experience the punishment of not obeying the ruling authorities. That includes fines, jail time, and all the other interesting things the IRS may come up with. So as a general truth, Christians, we are called sojourners in a foreign land by Peter, and yet we are still in this foreign land, benefiting from it. Christians are citizens of this country and also citizens of a foreign 
country, a far-off land ruled by God. Ultimately, that is where we are going. That is where they are going. But for now, they incur the benefits and costs of living under the rule of Caesar. So until Christians step foot out of this foreign place, we are called to respect the government over us because of the image we carry in our pocket. That brings us to our second point, the likeness of God. The image-bearing idea is such an important idea for Jesus in this passage. And I really hadn't seen it before until I spent some time this week thinking about it. Normally I look at this passage as strictly a discussion on God and government. And there is some of that, but it's far deeper than that. Jesus is speaking to politicians and theologians. And he doesn't want to make a political argument. He doesn't want to necessarily make a theological argument. He makes his argument on something very clear. The teaching from Genesis, something that all those Jewish boys and girls were taught from the very beginning. If we give to Caesar that which has his image on it, we need to give to God that which has his image on it. And what bears the image of God? Us. We do. Genesis 1.26 tells us the very idea. It reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Hebrew there, very similar to what Christ asked the Sanhedrin in our passage. Whose likeness is this? We are all made in the likeness of God. We all carry the likeness around with us, Christian or not. And the likeness of God carries with it benefits and costs. Benefits, they're quite clear. Those made in the image of God have intrinsic worth or value. Because God is made worthy and valuable. God God is most worthy and valuable. Excuse me. He's what all value is compared to. It also means as a church, when we look at anyone who walks into these doors, no matter the skin color, no matter the orientation, no matter the association, political affiliation, all who walk into these doors are image bearers. And all are to be respected and loved as image bearers. As an apologetic, I would say it's one of the great benefits of Christianity. Our world has taken its time to get to the point of respecting individuals as people. The church had its faults in that time as well. But biblically, men and women are all made in the image of God. And we can stand firm on that idea. The world makes those claims, but they have shaky philosophical grounds as they try and figure out how to define it. Christians do not. All people are made in the image of God. That's one of the great benefits of being made by God. Another one is to carry with us the characteristics of God. A reflection of Him, what some theologians call communicable attributes. Now they are not exactly the same. God is a creator and we are creatures. But we still carry this image. It's a distorted picture, as some say. These attributes, love, Truth, goodness, kindness, beauty, wisdom, community, justice, authority, righteousness. There's plenty of others. These characteristics can be seen throughout all of humanity. In big and real small ways. From our own personal pursuit of justice in this world, in our lives, to also sharing as a community in our pursuit of goodness. And even further in the systems as it gets larger and larger, the governments would set up throughout history has been said, we are doing something for the goodness of people and for justice. That's what we stand by as a government. 
as they establish authority all over this world. So for those who follow the Bible, they would say these pursuits, not necessarily how they are worked out in the world, but those pursuits themselves are all because they've been made in the image of God. They ground themselves in who God is. And the desires for these worlds, the end of this world, is there. It's truly a great benefit for us to always appeal to. God is the one who pushes us towards this. But there is a cost when it comes to creation. What's the cost of being an image bearer of God? Like Caesar, we are called to give back, give God back his image. Our whole being was made to give back to the one who made us, who has imprinted his image on us. Our whole lives are owed to God, everything. We are made to bring God glory through our lives, to reflect his goodness, to show his righteousness. That's the claim of Christianity. And we fail to do it. It's as though we didn't pay our taxes. We fail to respect the image we were imprinted with. We fail to show the characteristics of goodness and righteousness and holiness found in God. We fail to keep the relationship he established with us in, in creation. So now, now we would say that our image is marred, like a mirror that's been smeared with grease. We do not see the image of God clearly, and failing to bring God glory through his image results in what? Punishment. Much like not paying our taxes, there's a concern of punishment, of losing the benefits. Here we have, we've lost some of our benefits. Let me make this absolutely clear. Our relationship with God is first established in creation. Adam is made in the image of God and placed in relationship with God because of that creation. He is then given a great benefit of living in the Garden of Eden, having a relationship with God, with the expectation, do not eat of the tree God has pointed out of him. Now we all know the story. Adam failed to keep the end of his relationship, ate of the tree, and was thrown out of the garden, losing the benefits of this close relationship. All of this is predicated on who God is and who we are as his creation. All of us made in his image. So all of us here now bear the same benefits given to Adam and the same failures as Adam. And those failures incur a cost. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. The cost of our failures, our sin, is death and punishment because we fail to pay the cost to receive all the benefits. And so we stand here right now waiting for judgment and the cost to be paid for our failure. When Christ tells us we need to give God what belongs to God, we should realize how we have not and we will not be able to give him everything. But there is good news. Something rather amazing happened. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant born in the likeness of men. There's that word again, likeness. The likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, 
the Son of God, came in the likeness of men. He took on a likeness. Just as we were imprinted with the image of God, God came and was imprinted with the image of man. And Jesus Christ became the Son of Man. Why? To pay the cost of our punishment. To deal with our punishment and pay the cost so we could receive all the benefits of being made in the image of God. Those who are in Christ, who have paid the cost, we now can enter into the kingdom of God. We can become citizens of heaven, is what it says. To reap all the benefits of being with God and being made in God's image. This is the great news for all of those who look at a denarius or who look at other coins or look who, at, who look at dollar bills. Yes, we carry the image of a country. We may have a driver's license or a passport saying that we are citizens of this sovereign nation. But God's son came and made a passport for all who believe. All who repent and believe, he opened the border to enter into God's country. If you believe your citizenship is in heaven and you enter on the passport of Christ because he came in our image. And he paid the cost and gave us all the benefits. So now we look like Christ. It is Christ's image on that passport with our name on it. We enter because Christ gave us this perfect image. Romans 8, Paul says that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is how we stand in the heavenly kingdom. By taking the true image of God through Jesus Christ. This is the shocking story of the Bible. We who were made in God's image, giving all the benefits of image bearers, couldn't pay our taxes. But God paid it for us. And now, as we stand in this world, looking longingly for our final resting place, our true nation, we pay our taxes in this nation. We pray for our leaders. We are reminded our adherence to this country, this citizenship, is a small image of the citizenship we have in heaven. The likeness we have in our pocket points to a greater likeness we have in God. And if you believe, you'll find it in heaven with Jesus Christ. Church, what a great reminder and joy to discover that we have been welcomed into heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And to now stand in this country respecting and following the laws of our land. Knowing the better land is waiting for us. With our, with our benefactor, Jesus Christ. And we can give our whole lives for him. Because of what he has done. Let's pray.